All right. Good evening, everybody. We'll begin with a word of prayer before we start our study. Our great sovereign God, we thank you so much for the incomparable work that you have done to inspire the writing of your scriptures, to providentially guide which writings are canonized so that only those writings that should be canonized were canonized, nothing more, nothing less. We thank you that you've preserved your word for us down through the centuries. Even though we don't always understand how the process works, we don't always know what individuals you've used to write and to preserve your word. We thank you that very much that they were faithful to you. We thank you that you inspired them and guided them. We ask that you will help us to clean this evening from the book of Hebrews as we begin our study with part one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews, part one. Jesus Christ, our intercessor at the throne. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, we are told in this book. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. A number of people have been suggested. It is Paul, Luke, Clement, Barnabas, Apollos, and others, but it still remains a mystery. Whoever wrote Hebrews knew Greek, was steep in the Old Testament scriptures, had a well-organized mind capable of ordering numerous details to produce a well-organized, a well-reasoned argument that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The date of composition is uncertain. Since we don't know for sure who wrote the book, we can't be certain of when it was written exactly. It's probable that Hebrews, Hebrews was written before AD 70 because it does not mention the destruction of the Jewish temple or refer to empire-wide Christian persecution. There was persecution, of course, in local areas. Either Christians were persecuted by their neighbors or they were persecuted by local officials. There was not yet a, an empire-wide persecution. In a document that is so heavenly Jewish, it would be remarkable to make no mention of the temple's destruction. So if this was after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it would have been remarkable that the writer didn't at least mention it. The book of Hebrews takes us on a journey of mystery. of Jesus Christ and Jewish unbelievers to embrace it rather than to try to escape persecution by bowing to the rites and rituals of Judaism. Hebrews is basically a sermon about Jesus. It begins by exalting Jesus' greatness, then goes on to explain what he did on our behalf as the ultimate high priest, ending with the challenge to embrace his finished work on the cross. The overarching theme of Hebrews is, is the superiority of Jesus Christ, a matter with both doctrinal and practical implications. And we'll see that in the, in the itinerary, the outline of the book. The first 10 chapters of the book are primarily doctrinal, showing us that Christ is better than anything else. First, he's better than the prophets. The first three verses of the book He's better than the angels, 1, 4 through 2, 18. He's better than Moses, chapter 3. He's better than Joshua, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. He's better than the Levitical priests, in chapter 4, verse 14 through 7, 28. He's better than the tabernacle, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. He's better than the Old Covenant, 8, 6 through 9, 22. And he's better than the sacrifices. 9.23 through 10.39. And then the final chapters of the book uh, concentrate more on the practical side of things. Chapters uh, one, 11 through 13. And they're very conveniently organized in, in terms of faith. Chapter 11 is, is the famous hall of faith. 
faith chapter. Chapter 12 deals with hope. And the first part of chapter 13 deals with love, verses 1 through 7. The latter part of the of chapter 13 deal is the conclusion of the book. Now, embedded within these sections uh, of the book of Hebrews, there are warning passages. There are six of those. There's the peril of drifting, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The peril of doubting, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. The peril of dullness, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. The peril of departing, chapter 6, verses 1 through 20. The peril of despising, chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. And the peril of denying, chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Uh, I won't deal with the warning passages this evening, but in our next session, uh, Hebrews part two, I'll get into these warning passages because there are some very important issues that are raised in the warning passages. Uh, first of all, are the warning passages directed to unbelievers or are they directed to believers? That's one set of issues. And then of course, the issue of, well, is it possible for a believer to actually lose his salvation? So all of these issues are brought up by these warning passages in Hebrews. And we'll take a look, closer look at those next time. Gospel. One of the most prevalent images in the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ as the great high priest who has ushered in the new covenant. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the writer of Hebrews then tells us that we can go boldly before the throne of grace, find grace and help in time of need. What a marvelous passage. We all need God's mercy and grace and lots of it. And that's what the new covenant provides. Because of what Jesus did for us in giving himself is our atoning sacrifice. We don't have to come before God with fear and trembling, shaking in our boots because of our sin. We can come boldly before his throne and ask for his help. I mentioned that the author of the book of Hebrews is unknown, but that hasn't stopped people from wondering who wrote the book, who might be the author. And so, since the author of Hebrews is unknown, and we don't know for sure the date that Hebrews was written, or where it was written, or to whom it was written, I'm going to spend a little more time on the historical aspects of the book than I usually do on uh, studies when I'm examining the book of the Bible. But I think this will be very helpful to, to, to grasp uh, the historical aspects of this book and the different views about who the author might have been and when the book might have been written. So Paul is, of course, one of the, one of the choices. The evidence in, in favor of Paul as the author is the, the Pauline doctrine that's evident in the writings of Paul as well as to some extent in the book of Hebrews. The early fathers in the East attributed it to Paul. The, Western churches weren't quite so eager to accept the idea of Pauline authorship, but it was accepted quite early in the, in the East. And the reference to Timothy, it does refer to, to Timothy in the book. So that was Paul's trusted companion. So that's another reason that some people think Paul was the author. Barnabas. The evidence is he was an associate of Timothy uh, some fathers, for example, Tertullian, held this view, and he was a Levite. We're told that in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, which fits with the emphasis in the book of Hebrews. He was of the priestly tribe. Luke, the evidence is the polished Greek. The, the Greek is very, very impressive in the, in the book of Hebrews. His association with Timothy, who was mentioned in 1323, and the similarities with Paul's doctrine. Luke worked with Paul as a close associate with Paul. Apollos, 
the evidence is the style of Greek fits his training. The Old Testament quotes but his emphasis. Apollos was quite familiar with, with the scriptures of the Old Testament and they are emphasized greatly in the, the book of Hebrews and his eloquence matches his oratorical skills. Apollos was a, was a great orator. Now some of the lesser known people, um, Silvanus or Silas, to suppose that Paul's companion Silvanus or Silas authored the letter would again explain the similarities to Pauline theology, um, but not much more can be said for or against authorship by Silvanus. He might have written it, but we really don't have any good evidence one way or the other. Philip, the deacon, the, the deacon who uh, evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch. The same is true of the suggestion that Philip wrote Hebrews. We really can't say anymore. We don't know uh, whether he might have wrote it or whether he didn't. Priscilla and Nicola. Uh, a man named Adolf von Harnack, this was in the early part of the 20th century, uh, he was a New Testament scholar. He suggested that Priscilla, because of her association with Paul and her teaching of Apollos, that she wrote the book. No, Harnack argued that she left the book anonymous because of the cultural unacceptability of female authorship. And as you can imagine, uh, feminists have really glommed onto this because they would like so desperately to have uh, one of the books of the New Testament written by a woman. Clement. Uh, Clement is, um, there, are, there are two Clements in church history and it's easy to confuse them. There's Clement of Rome and then a little bit later there's Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Rome um, is believed to be the Clement that's spoken of in, in the New Testament in the epistles of Paul. Philippians uh, 4.23, I believe it is, mentions Clement. There are some likenesses between Hebrews and first Clement. Clement wrote a, an epistle to the Corinthians. First Clement, of course, is not in, in the canon of scripture, but he was a, an early Christian who wrote a, a letter to the, the Corinthians. And he's a possibility because there are similarities between Hebrews and first Clement. But there are also many differences in outlook and Clement probably borrowed from Hebrews. So, the author of Hebrews. Early on, the Eastern Church, as I mentioned, accepted Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews. In the Western Church, Pauline authorship was resisted. Some of the early church fathers came up with hybrid solutions. Clement of Alexandria, I mentioned that there are two Clements, this is the later one. He supposed that Paul wrote the book in Hebrew and suggested that our Greek text is Luke's translation of Paul's writings. So he had kind of a hybrid view that, that Paul wrote the book in Hebrew or Aramaic and then Luke translated it into Greek. Origen suggested He was one of the associates of Paul who worked with him. In the Western Church, Pauline authorship was resisted until the latter half of the fourth century. The Meritorian Canon, that's a list of books in the, in the New Testament Canon, which was written down about 170 AD, the Meritorian Canon, Irenaeus and Hippolytus, other church fathers, um, all agree that Paul was not the author. So the Western churches were emphatic that Paul was not the author. But the only alternative suggestion was that of Tertullian, who identified Barnabas as the author. It was the combined opinion of Jerome, 
and Augustine in the fourth century that finally shifted opinion in the West. By 419, it was generally acknowledged that Paul was the author. So for many centuries, it was thought in the churches that Paul was the author. But even so, the most learned commentators continued to raise doubts about this. Thomas Aquinas, as late as the 13th century, attributed the book to Luke. Not until the Reformation questioned countless ancient traditions was this one submitted to forcible re-examination. Calvin argued for Clement of Rome or Luke as the author. Luther came up with a very innovative solution. He proposed, for the first time as far as we know, Apollos as the author of the book of Hebrews. Today, virtually no New Testament scholar would advocate Pauline authorship. Differences in vocabulary, Greek style, and rhetoric make Pauline authorship less plausible. Beyond that, the absence of a self-identifying salutation at the beginning of the document, that was Paul's normal practice, he normally uh, identified himself right at the beginning, right? But in the initial verses of the, of the epistle, that was his normal practice. But he didn't do that, the author of Hebrews didn't do that, so it makes it hard to believe that Paul wrote it. Paul typically opened with a greeting of grace and peace to whomever he was writing, but this book doesn't have that greeting. Also missing is Paul's standard ending, where he signed with his own hand and made comments to some specific people. We don't see that in, in Hebrews. Numerous common Pauline themes are missing, and conversely, the high priesthood of Christ, so central to Hebrews, does not figure largely in the acknowledged Pauline epistles. Paul doesn't use that figure. Hebrews does. But the most important consideration is that the author of Hebrews put himself in the category of those who heard the gospel secondhand, whereas Paul said he had received the gospel directly from Jesus himself. He tells us that in, in the book of Galatians. He encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then he was taught by Jesus for three years in the book of, in, in the Arabian church. So it looks like Dana dropped off. So we are going to wait for him to come back on here. At least in the case of Paul, Luke, and Clement of Rome, there are some extant writings that can be compared with the epistle to the Hebrews. Evidence in support of other writers is entirely circumstantial since no undisputed document from their pens has come down to us. We don't have writings from these other, author, other authors to compare with the book of Hebrews. So there are three principal options. Those who suggest Barnabas is the author point out that he was a Levite from Cyprus, that, that is significant, significant that he was a Levite, and therefore a member of the Hellenist party in the Jerusalem church. On this ground, it is suggested he may have shared the anti-temple perspective of Stephen. That's what some scholars call it, the anti-temple anti perspective. For a time, he was 
a close collaborator of Paul. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And since he was called son of encouragement, it is entirely appropriate that he should write a word of exhortation that we read about in Hebrews. But paraclesis, encouragement or exhortation, is sufficiently common in the New Testament that it cannot be restricted to a, an association with only one person. The epistle to the Hebrews is not so much anti-temple as interested in demonstrating the obsolescence in principle of the Old Testament ritual, which of course was first connected with the tabernacle, not the temple. That Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew makes him at least potentially qualified to write a Christian book so deeply interacting with the Septuagint, but it hardly identifies him as the author. So he's a likely candidate, but we can't know for sure. Luther's suggestion of Apollos has gathered a fair bit of support. He is described as a learned man, more probably an eloquent man, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, Acts 18.24 tells us. He was a native of Alexandria in Egypt, and many writers have found numerous connections between the epistle to the Hebrews and the writings of Philo of Alexandria. But although Luther's suggestion is a brilliant guess, there is insufficient evidence to make it testable. Moreover, many have pointed out that although Hebrews share some important vocabulary with Philo, the basic elements of his thought are far removed from the Neoplatonism and Stoicism that undergird so much of Philo. So Philo was, was very much influenced by uh, Greek philosophy. And of course, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, even though he may use some of the terminology in common with Philo, he has uh, totally different meanings, attaches totally different meanings to those words. Of course, Apollos may have transformed the categories in which he was trained as he became familiar with Philo Alexandria, as he improved his knowledge of the Christian way. But, the, but that is to pile speculation upon speculation. We just don't know for sure. From the time of Harnack, I mentioned before Adolf von Harnack, a number of scholars, Harnack started this, but a number of scholars have suggested that Priscilla is the author perhaps in conjunction with her husband, Aquila, in, in a minor role. That might account for the interchange between the we and I in the book. The former is more common, but the, the we, but there is some examples of I in the book. They were sufficiently informed that they undertook the teaching of Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila did. And they must know Timothy, who's mentioned in, in the book of Hebrews, since like them, he worked with Paul in Corinth and Ephesus. The disappearance of the author's name is then accounted for by appealing to the anti-feminist tendencies in the church. Once again, however, there is, there is too little evidence to support the thesis. Above all, this is significant, this seems to be ruled out by the self-reference in the masculine singular in Hebrews 11.32. So the author of the Book of Hebrews uses a masculine singular pronoun to refer to himself. So it's very unlikely that Priscilla was the author. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Early in church history, the answer became unclear. The church father Origen admitted that he didn't know. But who wrote the book, the epistle? In truth, God knows. Of course, God knows, but we just can't be certain who wrote the book. So, since we don't know the author of the book, well, certainly it's very difficult to date the book. That the addressees, the, the people to whom the book was addressed, and perhaps the author himself belonged to the second generation of Christians, does not yield much concrete information, since second generation must be understood not chronologically, but genealogically. So when we're talking chronologically, you know, one generation is born and then about approximately 20 years later, the next generation is born and so on. But of course, uh, 
it doesn't take 20 years once you become a Christian before you can tell the gospel to other people and have them become Christians. So uh, the fact that, that he was the second in the second generation of Christians doesn't really tell us much chronologically. Probably uh, one should infer that the epistle was not written before AD 50, and most would insist not before 60. Although some of the quotations of Hebrews in 1st Clement are disputed, it is exceedingly difficult to dismiss the repeated references to Hebrews chapter 1 in 1st Clement 36, verses 1 through 6. The majority of scholars date 1st Clement to AD 96 during the, the reign of the Emperor Domitian. If accepted, this would put a terminus ad quem to the date of Hebrews. In other words, that is the latest date that the Hebrews could have been written. It had to be written before 96 AD because Clement quotes it in his epistle. The primary reason for dating first Clement so precisely is that some word, words from the first chapter, the sudden and repeated misfortunes and calamities which have befallen us, uh, Clement says, are thought to refer to the persecution of Christians under the emperor Domitian. So that's why they feel so confident that verse Clement dates from around 96 AD, the reign of the emperor Domitian. If, as seems likely, the Timothy mentioned in Hebrews 13.23 is the younger companion of Paul, then the epistle to the Hebrews must have been written within his lifetime. It's apparent that Timothy is still alive at the time the book of Hebrews was written. Paul co-opted him into missionary service around AD 49. But we don't know how old Timothy was at the time. Still, this probably establishes the upper limit for Hebrews to be about 100. Very close to the upper limit imposed by the traditional dating of First Clement. So we can pretty be pretty confident that the book of Hebrews had to be written before that. Many have attempted to tie the words of Hebrews 12.4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. They've tried to tie those words to the particular period of persecution leading up to the persecution under Nero, Emperor Nero. If the language is figurative, signaling nothing more than strenuous opposition to sin, the passage has no bearing on the date of the book. So the writer of Hebrews is just talking about resisting sin in general, um, then it has no bearing on the date of the book. But even if the passage is understood somewhat more naturally to refer to the deaths of martyrs, it is exceedingly difficult to draw undisputed references. For example, one might conclude that this rules out the church in Rome during or immediately after Nero's persecution, because Christians at that time did lose their lives. That might suggest a date earlier than Nero's persecution. Alternatively, one might suppose this was written to believers elsewhere other than in Rome, elsewhere in the empire who had heard what the fellow believers had already suffered under Nero in Rome, but who had not themselves faced opposition that had gone so far. In that case, the book was written after Nero. This makes it rather hazardous to use Hebrews 12 for to, to isolate a particular date. So even if we understand that verse in terms of, of martyrdom, shedding of blood, it doesn't really tell us definitively when the book was written. One of the most commonly presented arguments turns on the occurrence of present tense verbs in connection with the ritual. In English translation, they read as if the ceremonies are continuing at the time the author is writing. So the sacrifices are being offered at the present time, according to our English translations of the book of Hebrews. There are two flaws in this argument. First, the present tense in Greek does not necessarily refer to the present time. In Greek, there's a thing called the historic present. So even things in the past can be spoken of 
in the present with present tense verbs like they're happening right now, even though they aren't really happening right now. Second, Clement of Rome, writing after the destruction of the temple, uses the present tense to describe the similar rituals in the temple. And Josephus alternates between present and past tense in his discussion of the tabernacle and its furnishings. So we really can't tell much about by the tense of the verbs. But although the linguistic argument is not decisive, another form of this argument is far stronger. When the author of Hebrews cites Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant, in chapter 8 of in the book of Hebrews, he's, he cites the, Jeremiah's chapter 31 prophecy about the new covenant. He concludes that by calling this covenant new, God, through Jeremiah, made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So it hadn't disappeared yet at the time that Hebrews was written. The law covenant can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? So, it's difficult not to conclude that the sacrifices were still being offered when the author wrote such lines as these. So, it appears that sacrifices were still being offered at the time the book of Hebrews was written. By the same token, if the sacrifices of the temple had ended, as they did in AD 70, it is hard to imagine how he could have resisted pointing this out. So surely the, the author of the book of Hebrews would have pointed out that the sacrifices had ceased, if they had ceased by his time. Although not conclusive, this constitutes strong support for a date before 70 for the book of Hebrews. Thus, although one cannot decisively rule out any date between AD 60 and 100, the preponderance of evidence favors a date before 70. So a range between AD 64 and 69 is most likely. So that is probably when the book of Hebrews was written, sometime in that range, AD 64 to 69. The provenance of Hebrews, where was Hebrews written? Where was the letter sent from? If we are uncertain about who the author was, the, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews, we are uh, still less certain about the book's geographic provenance, where it came from. The only explicit clue is found in 1324. Those from Italy send their greetings. We find those words in, in the book of Hebrews. Unfortunately, the, the expression is unclear. It may refer to a group of Italian believers who left their native land and were sending their greetings home, in which case the epistle was sent to Italy, but we cannot specify the place from which it was sent, or it may refer to believers in Italy, in which case we cannot identify the destination, but the author was writing from Italy. So we don't know for sure. We know that they were Italians, but were they writing to, were they writing home to Italy or were they writing from Italy? Because we cannot be certain which is meant, the ambiguity of the NEB, the New English Bible, rendering is attractive. Greetings to you from our Italian friends. So we can't really be certain absolutely whether it's to or from Italy, so. It just, it just says, greetings uh, to you from our Italian friends. The frequent appeal to the Old Testament is a presupposed knowledge of Jewish ritual, the warning not to apostatize back to Judaism, and the early traditional title all point to Jewish Christians as the original recipients. So it appears that the book of Hebrews is addressed to Jewish Christians. But where are these Jewish Christians? Where were they? Because the author refers to experiences in the lives of his readers, the assumption is that he has a specific group in mind as he writes. Many ancient commentators and some modern ones think that the addressees lived in Palestine, perhaps even in Jerusalem. 
and of course, when I say Palestine, don't think in terms of the Nasser Arafat and the, the Arab peoples who presently call themselves Palestinians. That's only been since the 1960s. Um, this land, especially after the after the, the first and second Jewish revolts, became known as by the Romans as Palestina, and that's a name that stuck for centuries. The Ottoman Empire ruled over this land for 400 years, and they called this particular area Palestine. And that's, as I said, a name that stuck. Uh, the Jewish settlers who came to the land after World War II referred to themselves as Palestinians. And they referred to their newspaper as the Palestine Post. So I don't think in terms of the modern Palestinians of today. Uh, name that was started by Nasser Arafat. But some moderns think, some ancient commentators and moderns ones too, think that these Jewish Christians lived in Palestine, perhaps even in Jerusalem. Some scholars even go so far as to identify them with converted Jewish priests in Jerusalem. Um, this is referring to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where it says you should, by now you should be teachers. Some people think that that's referring to the Jewish priests who had been converted to Christianity. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 talks about how many Jewish priests were converted to Christianity. Not just some, not just a few, but many, it says. So some scholars think that uh, those who should by, by now be teachers is referring to the, the Jewish priests who had been converted to Christianity. But the strength of this view turns on the repeated references to the rituals of the Levitical priesthood. But the complete silence on the temple as opposed to the tabernacle weakens this theory. So the book of Hebrews is always talking about the sacrifices in relation to the tabernacle, not the temple. There's no mention of the temple in the book. So it's, it's difficult to take this as a, an indication that we're talking about Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem. The epistle is written in polished Greek and none of the Old Testament quotations and allusions unambiguously depend on Hebrew or Aramaic. From this, we must conclude either that the author knew no Semitic tongue or that his readers in Jerusalem were all expatriates, Greek speakers, choosing to live in Jerusalem or the surrounding area. So if it is referring to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, it's referring to Christian, Jewish Christians who, whose native tongue was Greek and who were familiar with the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Judging by the large numbers of Jews from around the empire that visited Jerusalem at the feast, especially Passover, there were countless Jews who did not live in Palestine, but who nevertheless looked to the rituals of the temple in Jerusalem for cleansing and for a secure relationship with God. If that is so, it is hard to see what evidence in the book supports Jerusalem or Palestine as the destination above many other places in the empire. There were Jews who lived many places in the empire, not just in the environs of Jerusalem. It is also significant that according to Hebrews 2.3, the Jewish Christians that Hebrews is addressed to had neither seen nor heard Jesus for themselves during his earthly ministry, as many Palestinian Christians doubtless did. So, so many of the Jews living in the land of Palestine or in, in around Jerusalem had seen and heard Jesus. But according to the book of Hebrews, these particular Jewish Christians had not. And according to Hebrews 6.10, they materially assisted other Christians, whereas Palestinian Christians were poor and had to receive aid. We read about that in Acts, in the book of Romans, in the book of 2 Corinthians. 
Remember, Paul had to take up a collection to take to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So these Jewish Christians that the writer of the book of Hebrews is addressing don't seem to be the Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem. Furthermore, the addressee's knowledge of Jewish ritual appears to have come from the Old Testament in its Septuagintal version, rather than from attendance at the temple services in Jerusalem. So they were familiar with the Old Testament writings about the Jewish sacrifices, but they weren't familiar with them by attendance regularly at the temple. Although many other candidates for destination have been advanced, including Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch, Bithynia, Pontus, Caesarea, Colossae, Corinth, Cyprus, Ephesus, and Samaria, the only other suggestion that has gathered a fair measure of support is Rome. Supporting this conclusion is the fact that in the literature that has come down to us, this is the first place the epistle was known in the writings of Clement of Rome. So that's the first we know about this epistle is in Rome. So Rome is a good candidate where the Jewish Christians were living. The fact that the Roman church and the West in general took so long to ascribe Hebrews to Paul may argue that they enjoyed a positive, enjoyed positive information that it was not written by the apostle. So that maybe the, the early church in Rome knew who wrote the book of Hebrews and they knew that it wasn't Paul. The statement, those from Italy greet you, sounds as though Italians away from Italy are sending greetings back home. Italians who had left Italy in the time of the writing of this book, this missile, were living elsewhere, like Priscilla and Aquila. The Greek certainly allows for that interpretation. Alternatively, it has been proposed that Apollos wrote Hebrews in AD 52 at Ephesus and sent it to the church in Corinth, especially to its Jewish Christian members. This proposal draws many parallels between Hebrews and Paul's Corinthian correspondence, his letters, his epistles to the Corinthians, and identifies those from Italy as Priscilla and Aquila, who originally moved from Corinth to Corinth from Rome, but subsequently accompanied Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. It remains a difficulty, however, that the author of Hebrews does not mention Priscilla and Aquila by name rather than by a generalizing phrase. So why would the author of Hebrews just refer to Priscilla and Aquila as those from Italy? If we knew who they were, and if they were Priscilla and Aquila, why didn't he just say that? Especially since he has just mentioned Timothy by name. Timothy is mentioned by name in the book. So why not mention Priscilla and Aquila by name, if that is who is being referred to as those from Italy? Rome is as good a guess as any, but it is not much more than a guess. Fortunately, few exegetical issues depend on determining the geographic location of the addressees. The situation that calls forth this epistle is far more important. The purpose of Hebrews. Wherever the addressees lived, they are well known to the author. He writes about their generosity their persecution, their immaturity, and his hope of revisiting them soon. Two additional details may be significant. The addressees are exhorted to greet not only the leaders and fellow Christians in their own assembly, but also all the saints. He exhorted to address, uh, to address all the saints, to greet all the saints not just those in their fellowship. And they are rebuked for not meeting together often enough. You remember the famous words from the, from the King James, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. 
so they are rebuked for not meeting together often enough. Possibly then, they are a Jewish Christian group or house church who have broken away from the main body of Christians in their locality and who stand in danger of lapsing back into Judaism, perhaps to avoid persecution. The main purpose of the letter is to prevent such apostasy and restore them into mainstream Christian fellowship. The immediate fading of the sure tradition concerning authorship may be due to separation on the part of the addressees. So that may be why it was forgotten so early on in church history who the author of the book of Hebrews was because it was sent to these Jewish Christians who had begun to meet separately and not be a part of the mainstream, the main body of Christians. The reasons the readers have for reverting to some form of Judaism are not spelled out in detail. We don't know why they were in danger of lapsing back into Judaism. They are simply hinted at. For instance, it appears that they were tired of bearing the shame of living outside the mainstream of their cultural heritage. So that could have been one of the reasons why they wanted to reconnect with Judaism. It is also possible that fear was a contributing motivation. The religion of the Jews was recognized by the Romans. Christianity was not. You see, the, in the Roman Empire, ancient religions were allowed to continue. And as long as Christianity was just seen by the Romans as just another sect of Judaism, it was allowed to continue. But as Christianity was recognized more and more as a separate religion, it was recognized as a new religion, and that was not allowed. New religions were outlawed. So to return to the fold of Judaism might alleviate the threat of persecution by the state authorities. So that may, might have been one of the things that was causing them to at least toy with the idea of going back to Judaism and abandoning, abandoning Christianity, or at least uh, abandoning the outward trappings of Christianity. Maybe they still thought of themselves as Christians, but they wanted to be seen as more Judaizers. But whatever the reasons, it is not so much the reasons that interest the author as the outcome. Christ, his sacrifice, and his priestly work are so relativized that they are effectively denied. And apostasy is only a whisker away. It is to prevent such calamity that the author writes this epistle. He's, he's, he's exhorting the people not to go there, not to risk returning to Judaism, but to remain faithful to their calling in Christ. So what are the, the travel tips? the things that we can learn from the book of Hebrews, the applications and implications, and of course there are many. I'm just going to mention a few of them. Jesus is a better messenger than God's angels. The author of Hebrews knew that some Jews might equate Jesus with angels, or even categorize him as inferior to the angels. So he made it clear that Jesus had become so much better than the angels, which means we don't need to pray to a guardian angel or, or to any other envoy or go-between. We can go directly to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is a better moderator than Moses. A great man of God, Moses stood in the gap between the Lord and his people, moderating the covenant he had made with them through the law. Yet Moses was just a member of the household of faith whereas Jesus is its architect and builder. Jesus is better, a better mediator than any Jewish priest. Under the old covenant, a priest's job was to act as the mediator between man and God. Jesus was and is the perfect mediator between man and God. As a man, he identifies with our weaknesses and our need for forgiveness. As the perfect holy God, 
he was able to make the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now he lives forever as the one true mediator interceding on our behalf. So he's not only our savior, but he also continues to intercede for us throughout our Christian lives. Stay focused on following Jesus. That is the important lesson of the book of Hebrews. Don't let anything keep you from running your race. Attitudes or habits or relationships or anything that keeps you from looking unto Jesus, who is the goal and the prize all in one. So next time we will look at part two of the book of Hebrews, and next time we'll be looking more at the, the text of Hebrews, and we'll, I'll be considering those all-important uh, warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Remember that next week we don't have Bible study. Next week is corporate prayer, so it will be the, the following week that we have Hebrews part two. Let's conclude with a word of prayer, and then we can go on to our discussion and questions. Father, we thank you that <clears throat> despite our weaknesses and shortcomings, your Son, Jesus Christ, has reconciled us to you. He has opened the way. He has become our faithful high priest. We look to him. We lean upon him. We come to him to find grace to help in time of need. We ask that you would help us to appreciate what he has done on our behalf and how his actions on our behalf are not just something that happened long ago, but are something real and important and ongoing in our Christian lives. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen.